We're in Acts chapter 6 this morning. It is really hard for us to fathom the pace of the growth of the early Christian church, how rapidly things happened, how in such a short time, the body of believers in Jesus Christ go from being just over 100 to being in the thousands to more than 10,000, maybe close to 20,000. Acts 2.41 speaks of 3,000 who came to faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 2.47 describes even more as becoming believers. Acts 4.4 says 5,000 more men were added on this particular day in Acts chapter 5, verse 5, which tells us there were more women. There were many more who came to faith in Christ at this point. Acts 5.14 adds multitudes of both men and women. And so by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, there are at least 10,000 maybe close to 20,000 people who are now believers in Jesus Christ, who are now trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. And, and this is all centered in and around Jerusalem. This body of believers is coming together as one. Over a matter of weeks, maybe a month or so, there is this enormous expansion of the body of believers in Jesus Christ. And with growth comes opportunity and comes change. And we also know comes challenges. We've read about some of those challenges already. The threat of severe persecution that we've seen now being ramped up, and, and as we move through Acts 6 next week, it becomes evident in the, the first martyr of the church, and so severe persecution is now at the doors of the church. There's the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, and the, the, the challenge that is to the integrity of the church in that moment, but neither of those harmed the testimony of the church. What could potentially do even greater damage to the church would be some sort of conflict, some sort of crisis that would damage the unity of the church, that would take a body of believers that had been drawn together by the Spirit and begin to split them apart. We've read so far about how the Holy Spirit brought these new believers to this incredible sense of oneness, We've seen the sharing, the coming together, the concern, the, the proactive watching for needs of others and finding ways to serve them. And so they're selling property and they're sharing their belongings and they're doing what they can to meet the needs of one another. It's a beautiful community that is learning to live out the commands of Jesus Christ. What Jesus taught the disciples is now what they are teaching to the followers of Jesus, going right back to John chapter 13 and that distinctive that Jesus gave as he washed the disciples feet when he said, you must learn to love others as I have loved you. And in fact, he says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This, this is the distinctive, Jesus says. This is what the world is going to see. Not only do they need to hear the gospel and hear the truth, but this is what they are going to see that will be unique, that will mark you by your interaction, by your dealing with conflict, by how you share, how you serve one another, how you respond in the midst of a crisis. All of that, as it shows love for one another, will show Christ to the world. And so with growth comes challenge. When we are saved, we are, we are not suddenly made perfect and set free from temptation. We're very aware of that. As believers in Jesus Christ, we remain in the flesh, we understand the, the lure of temptation. We still say and do things that are sinful before God. 
The good news for believers in Jesus Christ is we are empowered by his spirit. We are enabled to to comprehend and to respond to his word. We are enabled by his spirit to live differently, to respond differently, to even when we have sinned, to then confess, repent, and turn from that sin. When there is conflict, to to resolve that conflict in, in ways that only the spirit and God's grace can enable. But that that temptation for conflict remains in the body of believers, still very real, and we're going to see it this morning in Acts 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. That's the passage we're going to cover this morning, Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's a, there's a sequence in this passage that is been repeated and is repeatable in the body of believers over the centuries. And I, I just want you to see this sequence because it's going to guide our outline for this morning. It starts with a conflict at some point. There's some, there's some flashpoint, there's some offense, there's something said, something done, whether it be intentional, whether it be out of ignorance or immaturity, something creates a conflict and there's a, a potential now for this break in fellowship. Next comes a response. What do we do? When that person has said or done something that is offensive, how do we respond to that? What is the first reaction? What, how do people respond, both the, the, the one who's committed it and the person who has received it? Lord willing, then, and, and we see it in this passage, there's a solution. We see it in Acts chapter 6. The conflict is recognized for what it is. It is responded to, and by the power of God's Spirit, changes are made to correct the problem. And then the, the fourth thing that we see in this passage is when that, when that occurs, conflict, response, solution, there's outcome, there's fruit that's born. There's a result. Jesus speaks of it often. It is throughout the New Testament that there is reaping and sowing. There's planting and there is harvesting. And so when a certain seed is put in the ground, there's a fruit that arises from it. And that's what we see here is the outcome of this. So let's look at each of these as we walk through it. Verse 1 again says, In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In the city of Jerusalem, there was the temple. We always know about the temple where they gathered for worship, where sacrifices were made, where the, the priestly ministry largely took place. But there were also synagogues. And synagogues were sort of the, the local smaller gathering places where there was teaching, where there was fellowship, where there was serving one another in the community. And, and what we know from history is that within Jerusalem, there were several synagogues. And what divided them primarily was language. There were those that were the synagogues of the Hebrews, where they largely spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, two very similar languages from the same family. They, they read from the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. 
There were also synagogues within Jerusalem, and, and one of them, in fact, we'll see next week down in verse 9, where there were, the, the language was Greek, where there were Greek-speaking Jews, I should say, who would come there to, to fellowship together and to be taught, and they read from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. This is attended by Jews whose roots, either themselves personally or their family roots, are probably from elsewhere in the Roman Empire. They are Jews by ethnicity, and yet they have lived elsewhere, or their families have lived elsewhere, and they are now regathered in Jerusalem, and they have come out of largely Greek-speaking world and culture, and so their synagogues meet around that. And so what what separates them is not only language, but it's the fact that the Hebrews were largely native to Jerusalem, largely families that had been in that area of Jerusalem and Judea for generations. The Hellenists were those who now lived there, but who had family roots that had been elsewhere, had been dispersed perhaps by, by being pushed out into the world by enemy armies or, or by taking opportunities to go elsewhere. If you look at the, the, this map, we looked at this back in, in Acts chapter 2 when it was the pouring out of the Spirit. And Acts chapter 2 is talking about the various languages that people speak. And it goes through this, this litany of nations. And you move from the, the, the far direction in the east of, of uh, Parthia and Medea modern-day Iran and Iraq, and it also covers in Acts chapter 2, uh, Pontus and Cappadocia, what is modern-day Turkey, then down into northern Africa, into Egypt, to Libya, places that are mentioned there in, in Acts chapter 2, and then as far west as Rome. There are all of these people who have primarily in common Greek-speaking language, but as you can gather, as you look at this map and think of people covering this sort of geographic range, there are differences. There's cultural differences. There's different backgrounds. There's different approaches to things. And so they, they come from all of these different places, and they are now what is described in Acts chapter 6 as Hellenists. The word primarily simply means Greek-speaking. It has the idea that that's Greek language, but we know that within that is, is this sort of cultural adaptation as well. So in Jerusalem, there are native Jews, and there are Jews who either by themselves or their ancestors had lived elsewhere and had moved back in. That's important to our understanding of Acts chapter 6. That is the nature of the Jewish community in Jerusalem. It is, on one hand, something of a melting pot, but on the other, it is clearly segregated. The synagogues are meeting Separately, those who are more local, who are more Hebrew in their thinking and certainly in their language, those who are more Greek in their culture and in their language are meeting separately. They are coming from out of that into this body of Christ. They are now joining together as believers. The, the distinction in Acts 6-1 is primarily linguistic. We're not naive, though, about these things. There's ethnic differences. There's all sorts of cultural breakpoints that fall along the lines of people who are from groups that, that speak different languages. And historians tell us there was some of this outsider, insider sort of thinking, this sort of locals and transplants attitude. Richard Longenecker, the commentator, says, according to Jewish writings, the Talmud in specific, Pharisaism, so this would have been sort of the the heart of Hebrew Jewish sort of thinking, Pharisaism, made little secret of its contempt for Hellenists. They were frequently categorized by the native-born and assumedly more scrupulous populace of Jerusalem as second-class citizens. 
And so that's, that's what the, the Talmud is telling us, is that the Pharisees see the Hellenists, see the, the Greek speakers, the people who have adopted some of the culture of the world outside of Jerusalem as second-class citizens. And so it is not a stretch when we hit Acts 6.1 to see what one writer calls a potentially destructive situation that is rooted in ethnic issues. The church of Jesus Christ with this this moment, this complaint that, that is raised is now on the brink of a crisis of a split along ethnic lines and a disunity of the body of believers. That would, that would split the church. That would mar its testimony. That would do lasting damage to the witness of the body of believers. Think again, too, about what's going on here from what we know about the historical setting, and that is the poverty that, that is rampant through, through these people. Mo most of them are poor. Most of these early believers are poor. Their economic situation was difficult to begin with. It's now worsened by the fact that they have left their synagogue to come and be part of this body of believers. That was the, the synagogue provided the safety net. It was sort of the support system where they helped one another. And now if you walked out of that to join this community of believers in Jesus Christ, that's why we see the effort to share belongings, to those who had property to sell it and to, to pool it together to help others. Widows were among the, the most needy in the first century. To be a widow at that time meant virtually total dependence on your family members to provide for you and to care for you. And so in this situation in particular, if you are a Hellenist widow, that meant you may have come from somewhere else and you have come back to Jerusalem, maybe with your husband and, and he has now died, or you have now, your husband has passed years ago and you have now left the synagogue community to come amongst the body of believers. And so you may well be in a place where you have no family help, where you are now fully dependent on the care of others who, who previously, many of which were, were strangers, who now must provide for you. That's why this food distribution that they're talking about is not some incidental issue. This is critical. This is people's survival at this point as to how they will be provided for. And the Greek-speaking believers, it tells us the Hellenists, were beginning to perceive that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That word for neglected has the idea of being overlooked. Uh, it, it's, it's the idea of two things that are side by side, and I look at them and I see the one and I don't even see the other. I, I, I completely look past the other, and that's what the, the word implies here, that the Greeks, the Hellenists, are saying our widows are being completely neglected. It's as if you see the two of them and you, you just don't even see our widows in this food distribution. Um, we get it. This, this sense of, of, of some seeing something more quickly than others. What, what the accusation is here is, Hebrews, you see your own need, you see those around you that you're familiar with, and you are seeing that more easily, and you are caring for them more quickly than you are for those who are different. There's no explanation in the text for how this happened. One commentator says it, it, it could be as simple as what we've talked about, and that is this enormous growth of the church. And he says perhaps the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were, were just fewer in number, and so the widows of this group had less of a natural constituency to rely on. It's not necessarily even an intentional act. It could be. It may not be. It, it could be simply just a, a struggle with this booming body of believers and not caring for them well in the midst of all of that. 
So look at verse 2 again and just the response and then the solution. And the 12, it says, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And then we get the list of the seven names of those that they chose. It's a different sound. Is that me? Something with my microphone? I don't, know. I don't know if you're even hearing that. I'll push my microphone in on, on the online, but we're hearing it here. All right, we'll try again. Verses 2 through 4 are the part of the passage that we tend to focus on when we come to Acts chapter 6, because we, we generally come to this portion of Acts 6 to address the um, forming of deacons. The, the, the beginning of this institution in the life of the church that is those who are organized servants, who are called to come alongside of the church leadership and to serve them in some way. Sorry if you're hearing any audio stuff online. I'll keep plugging forward and we'll get another mic in here in a second. But we tend to go to this passage because of this sort of prototype of deacons. It's this foundational place where this organized servanthood is put in place in which um, the, the deacons come alongside the elders, in this case the apostles, to serve the church, to do helping sort of ministries that allow those who are primarily responsible for preaching the word to stay focused, to stay on the call of preaching and praying. So Acts 6, 1 through 7 is helpful in that, and, and that's where we tend to go preached on it about a year ago. You can go back and you can listen to that sermon on deacons too where we talk more about that. But, but it should not be lost on us before we move too quickly to the issue of servants who help those who are in leadership that the situation in verse 1 had elements that could ignite an unnecessary and tragic crisis. It would not have taken much for the church, we'll turn this one. Am I, am I good? All right, thank you. It would not have taken much for the church to be wrecked over this matter of food distribution to widows. Imagine if the apostles, when this comes up, this complaint by the Hellenists that our widows are being neglected, they are being overlooked. Imagine if the apostles' response at that point had been, it's not a big deal. It's, it's just perception on your part. Don't worry about it. Nothing, nothing to see here. Stop complaining. Imagine if that's how they had responded. Instead, verse 2 shows us their response. It says, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. Now, Pause and think about that for a moment, because we tend to sort of race over that description. We've already safely estimated that there were more than 10,000 of the full number of disciples at this point. We are talking thousands and thousands of people. When this issue arose, the apostles, it said, summoned the full number of disciples. The fact that they assembled the full body of believers to address this issue is a clear statement 
of them taking loving responsibility for what has happened. This is, this is not just a sweep this one away or, yeah, we'll take care of it, don't worry about it. This is a call the body together and acknowledge that there is a problem. Derek Thomas writes it this way. He says, the sight of widows accusing a section of the church with neglect came as an alarm bell in the apostles' ears. It was a problem that needed urgent and decisive treatment. That is a great statement. This is a, this is a conflict with roots in linguistic cultural and ethnic differences, and by God's grace, the leaders of the early church recognized it as being serious. They didn't slough it off. They didn't act like it just came from some administrative issues that just needed to be tweaked a little bit and it wasn't worth complaining about. They didn't simply hope it would go away. They gathered the body of believers and said, we have a problem here. We've got a serious problem, and they set out to find a solution. Their solution, as we've read, was to appoint seven men, all Hellenists, we presume, by their names. As you read through those names, those are generally names with a Greek sound to them, a Greek background. And so they appoint seven men, all from a Hellenist background, and their job is to make sure that the food distribution is done well and that no one is neglected, that that stops. This was a, a complicated and daily issue that had to be settled. This, this involved going out and gathering food and gathering offerings and assembling all of that and then going back out and doing the distribution. This is done on a daily basis. There's no refrigeration. There's no keeping this stuff for a long time. This is a constant job. Some gave money, others donated food, but this sort of organization had to all be done on a daily basis. It does seem from verse 2 that at least one of the Complaints, charges perhaps being made against the apostles is you guys need to, you need to do this. You need to be hands-on in this. You need to be in the nitty-gritty and you need, to, you need to fix all this. And it's clear that the apostles disagree. Not disagreeing that there's a problem. That's why they assemble the body because there is a problem that needs solving. But they disagree on that fundamental point as to how much they need to get in and micromanage this. And in fact, they say, no, we're going to appoint seven men. Not just any seven men, but seven men who show integrity, it says of good repute. They've got a, a reputation and a testimony of lifestyle, uh, of, of being above reproach. They are seven men who are demonstrating that the Holy Spirit is at work in them. They show maturity in terms of the gospel and their walk with Christ, and they have shown wisdom. These are men who, who have shown again and again by example that they, they have biblical wisdom and they are acting on that. We're going to appoint seven of them, and we're going to devote ourselves to the ministry of God's word and to prayer. Two things I just want to make sure you see about this solution. One is, this was not regarded as some mere logistics problem to be fixed. This was not just, give us seven skilled administrators who are certified in efficient workplace operations. Give us guys who, who can do all of this quickly uh, some of these men may have had skills in those areas, but the demand was for godly men. We need men who will, can be trusted, who can serve these widows. We don't have to worry about their integrity, who show spiritual maturity, who act with godly wisdom. They wanted men who didn't merely see this as a, as a, a checkbox to be marked off, a job to be done, but who recognized this as a calling to serve God by serving his churches, by, by serving his church, by serving these widows in this situation. They wanted guys 
whose passion was to, to serve Christ. I, we'll see the testimony of one of them when we go through the rest of the, the story of Stephen to, to see what kind of men these were. That's one part of the solution. The other part is that the apostle said, we're not going to micromanage this thing. We're not getting down in all of the details ourselves because fundamentally what the apostles had learned was that God was growing his church through the proclamation of the word and praying for people, praying for God to save people, to accomplish the work of building his church. And they needed to remain faithful to lead the church through preaching and through prayer. Now, note this. None of these jobs are expendable. This wasn't either or. We need to have preaching and prayer. We don't worry about all of that serving stuff. Or we just need to focus on serving others and, and, and fulfilling practical needs and the preaching and the prayer can wait. All of them were important. And all of them needed to happen in that moment. There was an urgency to this that preaching and prayer not be forsaken and that service be done immediately to, to meet this need and to care for these widows. And the best way to manage all that is to assign tasks, to see God's gifting and God's calling in individuals, and to respond to that and to delegate these tasks. So the seven were chosen. Again, we'll, we'll read about Stephen next week. In fact, I would encourage you this week during some of your devotional time is to read all of Acts 6 and 7, because next week we're going to go through all of that. I'm probably not going to read the entire account next week, just giving you a heads up, so I'm going to encourage you this week to make sure you read all of Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. But look at verse 6 again of Acts 6. These seven they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You probably noticed by now, and if you haven't, you should, that Luke uses a lot of summary statements in the book of Acts. A lot of places where he just pauses at the end of an account of, the, here's all the details, moment by moment in the detail, and then he gives a summary statement that just sort of pulls it all together. The last one we saw was at the end of chapter 5, after his account of the persecution. You'll remember that the apostles were whipped, they were beaten, they rejoiced at, at, at having suffered for Christ, and they returned back to the believers, and Acts 5.42 is the summary and says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So what Luke is doing is saying, here's the story. They were threatened. They were beaten. They were told to stop. And the summary of it is they just kept on teaching and preaching. And so he does these sorts of statements, the summary of the, the previous story. So here in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, is the summary from the outcome of the account that he just gave to us, the conflict the response, the solution, here's the outcome of that. Now, again, imagine, imagine if this conflict was not solved. Imagine if the apostles had said, ah, we don't see this problem. Just need to move on. Stop complaining. Or, or if it had been mismanaged. And imagine if word had spread to the community that this group of people who were meeting in the name of Jesus Christ at the temple, who were gathering there daily, were now splintering over the proper care of widows in their midst. Imagine if that story had, had begun to move out. Imagine if word had gotten out that these people who, who seemed to love each other so 
closely, that they, they shared their belongings, they sold property, they cared for one another. Imagine if, if the story came out that, yeah, well, now they're dividing up. Just like the synagogues, there's now going to be Hebrew and Hellenists. There's now going to be Hebrew-speaking and Greek-speaking because they can't get along. Imagine if the Hebrews turned their backs on the Hellenists and the Hellenists got angry at the Hebrews. That's the way this could have gone based on verse 1. Imagine if the church looked to all of the world like it was fully self-absorbed, people who barely cared about those who were close to them, especially if they looked or sounded different. If the, if the word on the street was that the Christians actually turned out to be not all that loving of a community, they look a lot like what they came from. They, they looked a lot like everyone else, showing partiality to those who look or sound alike and neglecting those who look or sound different. Imagine if that were the case. But that's not what happened, is it? On, on the contrary, the church took the conflict seriously and by God's grace responded with a solution that caused the body to be even more unified in the aftermath. By, by, by coming together and caring for the widows the way they did, living out the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of one another and serving for one another that he called them to, they're now functioning like Christ. And look at the outcome. Look at the response. Luke tells us first that the word of God spread even further. The word of God continued to increase. Many, many more people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, he makes this Statement at the end of verse 7, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Some of the Jewish priests from the same synagogues that these believers had just come from themselves into the community of believers, some of those same priests were now seeing what was happening and they were trusting in Jesus Christ. That is a remarkable statement. They had heard the preaching of the truth about Jesus, no doubt. Peter and the apostles have filled the streets of Jerusalem. That's what they were accused of by the religious leaders. You're, you're putting his blood on our hands. You're filling the streets with this teaching. So they had already heard the truth about Jesus Christ. They had seen some of the signs and wonders that were being done. But now there's this testimony of believers who are doing this sort of unworldly thing of rejecting partiality and embracing and serving one another despite their obvious differences, the same differences that had separated them before. The same thing that had caused multiple synagogues of different languages and cultures. Now they're seeing this body of believers that's coming together and overcoming those things and not neglecting one another. And it is a powerful glimpse of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As, as we walk through this passage this morning, I hope at some point, as we were reading this and thinking about this, you paused and, and thought to yourself, oh, this is interesting timing for this passage, that we would be thinking about this. And, and I, I got to tell you, I have repeatedly this week been in awe of God's providence in, in thinking about this passage, because we've, we've all walked through the last couple of weeks with feelings of grief and anger, and yet the more I... I keep reflecting on this. And Stuart and I are spending time just, just sort of reveling in this passage earlier this week and just what it, what it brings to the table for us as believers in Jesus Christ. The more I am struck by the reminders, the lessons for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, the names are different. 
Hellenist Hebrew. It's, it, it's different, but the reality of ethnic division is alive and well. So what can we learn? I'm going to give you a couple things, I think, by way of application from this. On the one hand, this must be a reminder to the church, to the body of Christ, that we are not immune from these things. That we are not somehow perfected at salvation and no longer struggle with thoughts of partiality against one another, of strife against ethnicities. This, this complaint comes at a point in the first century when the church of Jesus Christ is thriving. Everything we've read so far in these first five chapters tells us, oh, this is such a wonderful scene of oneness and sharing and coming together. And, 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 and so many Christians over the centuries have looked at these first five chapters of Acts and thought, oh, it, if only my local church felt like this in terms of people coming together. And it's in the midst of this, this community of believers striving together by the power of the Spirit and living in harmony and enjoying body life, right in the midst of this comes you are completely neglecting a whole group of people. You are actually looking. It's, it's as if you're looking at them and you don't even see them, and they are starving because of your lack of care for them. That's what comes up in the midst of all of this. You and I need to all be aware of the temptation to more easily see and more quickly serve people who look like us and sound like us. And how much easier it is to neglect those who are perceived as different. To look through them, past them, around them. L listen, nothing, nothing in the text says that the apostles intentionally set out to discriminate the Hellenistic widows. But the complaint that they responded to said ultimately that's what they ended up doing. Again, maybe not intentionally, but they neglected the Hellenist widows, they neglected them, they overlooked them. Somehow it had just become easier for them to serve the Hebrew widows that they knew than it was to serve the Hellenist widows. And, and Acts 6.1 then should remind all of us that there is enough remaining sin in each of us that it is possible to show more favor to the people that we are closer to, more like, who look more like us, sound more like us, and to overlook and even neglect others who don't. We learn from the passage some, some avoidance in this, how to prevent this. We also learn it from the rest of the New Testament on, on how we ought to avoid this, being humble as the apostles were, calling the body together and, and laying this out on the table, being humble, examining one's own motives, thinking about what's going on in my own heart in this moment, listening to others. We don't have the minutes from that meeting that the apostles called when, when all of these thousands of believers come together, but we do know what actions they took. They owned what was happening. By virtue of their actions, they said, this is a problem that exists. We are the leaders, therefore it needs to be solved. It needs to be fixed because it is a very real problem. We see it. We're responding to it. The way that widows have been handled has got to change. We don't know what they told those Hellenistic widows, but make no mistake about the message that we get here. We have heard your complaint, and we're responding to it, and we're doing something about it right now. Even, 
even if we want to give the full benefit of the doubt and say this is the administrative failure of a body that is growing disproportionately large at a rapid rate, even if we just want to go there, it still broke down along ethnic lines and was poised to destroy the unity of the church. And the apostles grabbed hold of it and said, this, this can't be tolerated. It must be fixed. They didn't make excuses. They didn't try to deny the complaint. Instead, they listened to what was said, and they responded to what was being said about discrimination against the Hellenists. Mind you, the other thing that prevents this conflict from escalating is, is communication, not just in listening, but it's speaking. The, the Hellenists spoke up. They, they, they said something's wrong here. They communicated that, that they believed at that point that their widows were being neglected. Now, there's probably a whole other sermon here, and in fact, you can go back to, to Stuart's on being graceful in confrontation in 1 Corinthians 6, right? Is it? No, 1 Corinthians 1. I'm sorry, yes, 1 Corinthians 1. And, and, and just get some, some reminders and some pointers there about how we, how we speak the truth in love and how we approach these sorts of things. But, but listen, these Hellenists, too, they, they are people who just came out of a segregated system of synagogues to become part of the body of Christ. And the temptation at that point must be to just simply get mad and to say, forget it. This ain't going to work. We'll do it ourselves. We'll set up our own little bodies, just, just, just like we used to have with the synagogues, and we'll just divide up. And instead, they talked, and they pursued unity within the body. Another application here. The apostles' solution should help us remember that sound doctrine is essential for the life of the local church. That a truth, a church must be rooted in doctrinal truth. That the, the thing that the apostles respond to here is they say, we will not forsake preaching and prayer. Because it is in the preaching of God's word, it is in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's there that the essential work of discipleship happens. Making disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, Jesus said. In the end, one of the church's most important tools against ethnic division and impartiality is teaching truth to God's people. It's pastors proclaiming Truth, it's parents persisting in passing down truth. It's believers discipling one another, mature believers coming alongside of younger believers and teaching them from God's word. What scripture says about the depravity of man, about the awful sinfulness of man, about the image of God yet that is in man and how God has made man with the imprint of his image on all human life and therefore it has value and dignity. Teaching from God's truth, how God sees justice and injustice and how he considers injustice to be sin. It is evil against him, and he loves justice. And, and teaching them, in fact, discipling them to see that partiality, this sort of discrimination, this neglect, is a failure to love our neighbor and is therefore sin. Sin against the God who made us and sin against the neighbor it is by proclaiming God's word and through prayer that we ultimately proclaim the only true hope for ever killing off the vile sin of ethnic hatred, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Laws and reforms are important, and they need to happen. And the church of Jesus Christ should never be afraid to speak out against evil in the world and to advocate for justice. 
But this passage is talking to and about believers in Jesus Christ who are filled with the Spirit of God and who are interacting with one another. This is primarily focused here on how we do this life as church. It's not teaching us how to do advocacy in the world. Yes, we should want good laws. We should want justice for all. We should expect our government to defend the liberties of all of its citizens. It's exactly what we talked about a few months ago when we talked about the, the, God's mandate for government. It is to protect all of its citizens. And we should expect those things and speak to those things. But we cannot lose sight of the fundamental truths we know about the sinfulness of man. And the fact that if we're going to take these very same principles we've been talking about this morning and seek to go outside of our doors and out into the world in which we are sent, we must do more than say, do better, be kind, do unto others. If, if, that's, the, if that's the gist of our message to a lost and dying world, then we end up sounding like the legalists that Paul was condemning in the book of Galatians who said, listen, just do the law. Just obey the law and that will make you right with God. They can't do it. That's, that's fundamentally what we know about the depravity of man. That's why laws are in place to provide some level of restraint. That's why the Holy Spirit works through the body is to help provide some level of restraint in a lost culture. We must give them Christ. We must show them Jesus Christ. We must hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must strive for within our body, a, a level of sacrificial, loving unity that demonstrates something that they cannot actually see anywhere else. Something that the world tries to emulate but never can. It is breathtaking when verse 7 says some of the, some of the same men who were the angriest opponents of Jesus Christ. These are the priests. These are the ones who, who just, what, a couple of months prior were rejecting their Messiah and demanding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And now they are captured by the simple living out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is using the testimony of the Hellenists and the Hebrews. They've, they've heard the truth that Jesus Christ is professed as Lord and Savior, that he died for sinners. But now they're seeing Hebrews and Hellenists sitting down and breaking bread together and having fellowship as a community that actually solves its differences, that actually brings conflicts and puts them on the table and talks them out as brothers and sisters and loves one another and thinks the best of one another and assumes the best and seeks forgiveness and reconciles. Those priests were now seeing something that they themselves couldn't emulate within their own synagogues. And that's the power of the gospel. And until Christ returns, may it be our ambition in the midst of a world that is filled with sin and violence and a world that rages against our king to be people who boldly speak the truth of the gospel, who boldly speak about a peace that is only ultimately found through Christ, a people who live by the supernatural power of the Spirit of God and who meet conflicts with grace and wisdom who live out the call in 1 Corinthians 13 to be patient and kind with one another, to hope for what's best in one another, to genuinely love each other, and who witness ultimately to what we've been saying throughout this whole series, it is the powerful work of God through the proclamation as he empowers what we speak as truth and brings people like these stubborn priests 
to bow their knee before Jesus Christ because they see something they can't otherwise explain. Let's pray. Father, you are God who, in the midst of the worst and deepest and darkest moments in human history, is at work and has often proven yourself to bring out of what man has burnt to ashes to bring life and to bring reconciliation and peace. You do that through the speaking of your word, the power of your spirit, the living out the gospel of your people. And so help us now to do that. Help us as we live through such turbulent times when the, when the temptations to, to split up and to become disunified are, are on many fronts. Help us to be a people who desire, hope for, assume the best in one another and speak and communicate and humble ourselves and open our own hearts up to searching and inquiring, to checking our own motives, to being aware of our own temptation to be like those who were looking right past others. Lord, convict us when we do that. Convict us when we judge people by their appearance, by the color of their skin, by the dialect of their speech, by the kind of job they work, by the social class they're in, when we somehow overlook them because they're different in some way. Would you convict us of that? Would you cause us to to see each life as made in the image of God, as made in your image with your imprint. May you help us as a body of believers to, to love one another uniquely by the working of your spirit. To be a people who love reconciliation, who love to be able to confess our sin and, and, and find forgiveness and to give and receive it to be able to solve the, the same sorts of problems that vex the world. Father, that you can bring us together in, in the midst of your body. Help us to do that and help us to proclaim Christ and the hope that is only found in him. Lord, even now as we lift our voices in song, we are reminded of that glorious future day when people of every tongue and tribe and nation will gather in your presence and proclaim the excellencies of our King Jesus Christ, of our great God and Savior. We, we anticipate that day. Use us to lead others to the very hope of that day. We pray in Jesus' name.